millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Podrick Reedy. This week, Edgette Melgren returns to Little Adams to tell us about her new book, Together, 10 Choices for a Better Now. So, Edgett Smokeman, welcome back to Little Atoms. Um, you were last with us in 2019 to talk about how to lose a country, and you're back today to talk about Together, 10 Choices for a Better Now. We normally start this podcast um, asking people what their books are about, but I think with this one, maybe the more pertinent question is, what is this book for? Oh, great question. Thank you, Patrick, for having me again. Uh, it's always a pleasure. Um, very good question, because I was so afraid to be asked of this question, what's the book about? You know, nowadays, when you write the book, uh, you also have to formulate the book for, uh, you know, good sound bites and everything. And this book is not, you know, quite convenient for that one. How to Lose a Country was, and it was, you know, made people angry. It gave, you know, to, topics for discussions for dinner parties and to be angry about and so on. But now this one, I'm asking something from people. So I, I'm not even sure it's a book. It's maybe a, a cardiac massage for on the heart of humankind. And it's also a talisman in this age of collapse for the human humans. How to, and I'm trying to tell them how to survive, how to survive morally and also how to, you know, and how we need, I need them to get together uh, to change the course of history. So this is for, yeah, uh, I, I'm, I'm sure it will sound quite ambitious, but this is uh, a book uh, for people who need to transform their, um, you know, uh, selves in order to appear in 21st century as the humans, uh, as better humans, yeah, I can say that. I think when we spoke in in 2019, we were, I think, I guess, in in the grip of you know depression and this, <laughs> I guess, and we were still still very much you know Brexit was just everywhere, Trump was everywhere, and and and, and almost now already it's very hard to, to to remember that time because of course we've been overwhelmed by something else again. But what has I mean, the obvious thing that's happened since How to Lose the Country is, is the pandemic. And the book starts with, with a very familiar pandemic kind of scene that I think a lot of people remember just kind of mm-hmm. that scene, you know, seeing your neighbour in the midst of all this and just 
you know, thinking both having that moment of realizing how mad all this is. But what in the world has, you know, apart from maybe the kind of the, the, this massive thing, and it's very hard to think about anything else in some ways, but what, what do you think has changed since, since How to Lose a Country? Uh, one thing changed. How to Lose a Country became a timely book in two years. <laughs> <laughs> I was, <clears throat> for especially for Western countries, I was a bit of ahead, I think. Mm. Uh, I was trying to convince them this is coming towards you as well. I mean, what had happened in Turkey will, you know, in a, in a similar way, will happen to you. And it was uh, mostly, you know, the especially the book events all around the world were mostly about trying to convince them what they are going through is a step towards fascism, towards an authoritarian system, not with uniform and boots, but with funny hair and orange skin, maybe. Um, so, you know, and it was really hard because one, I'm an outsider, I'm a woman with curly hair coming from a crazy country called Turkey. So it's not easy for me to convince, it's not easy for them to take me seriously. <laughs> Uh, and the you know Western uh, politics is not very uh, neither open nor used to um, listening its story from an outsider, whereas we are like Turkish or Middle Eastern countries are we're quite used to that. So yeah, um, and now I'm seeing people are more and more talking about how to lose a country, which is a tragic uh, fact for me because now I wrote a new book. <laughs> and I want to say, chap, chap, read that, get depressed. And then now I, you know, I have a yellow book that will cheer you up. <laughs> no, it's not, it's not cheering up. Uh, one thing I noticed actually, like it has been only a few days that the book is published, but several people talked about it and, I, wrote, uh, I read reviews and so. Uh, it's funny, actually, it's kind of strange. How to Lose a Country invigorated people more because it was, you know, something, uh, it was alarming, let's say. Mm. But then this is, as you said, as we said in the beginning, it's asking for something from people. So everybody, you know, many people, I felt like, you know, they are like muted. Mm. Mm. First, is this a political book? It's mm, maybe not. It looks like a self-help book because it's yellow, very yellow. And what is it? What do you want from us? And so on. So I'm in a, in a, in a very interesting situation nowadays. Um, um, I want people, I hope, uh, you know, sooner than two years, as it happened in How to Lose a Country, to realize that this is the new politics. The new politics will be about emotions because... As we know, you know, all these authoritarian leaders and uh, right-wingers and so on have been uh, doing a lot of politics of emotions. They're, they were playing on emotions. So I think progressive politics should be also consider, should also consider to think and talk about emotions as well. We shouldn't be, uh, we shouldn't be, um, sh we shouldn't shy away from it. Mm -hmm. These, you know, I wanted to write about those words we generally shy away from as progressive people like love, faith, you know, mm. and all those, you know, not practical programs for government, but, but, no. but actually talking about, you know, I guess, yeah, it's something we'll come back to. Now, you talk about emotions, um, and the book is, is learned, you know, the, the, the chapter titles, you know, it's a, you know, to, you are all engaged with different emotions, um, pretty much. Um, you know, we talk about befriending fear, choosing dignity over pride, and everything is presented as, as how you can 
choose things. Um, there is one point um, in the middle of the book um, where you describe talking to to your therapist about giving up on anger. Tell, tell me how and when that happened. Because it's not something I ever would have imagined would happen with you, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, okay, let's start with this. Uh, I was, I became really famous in Turkey at some point when I was in this political debate show and there was this populist supporter, diehard supporter of Erdogan. Mm. And we were discussing something. And I, at some point, the idiocy and the banality and the, you know, vulgarity of the whole discussion, or not discussion, his vulgarity, yeah. and his stone headness, whatever, um, infuriate me so much so that I asked the question, when did you become so cool? And then I went on talking, like mm. very, very, people loved it. This, you know, it, th that video clip has become very popular and so on. Mm. And then I remember this video clip and how it became famous in Turkey and how it functioned actually in the political scene uh, during those days. And I came to conclusion that anger is no, anger is, anger, especially the anger of the intellectual, anger of the opinion leader, is seen as a spectacle. And they're actually watching you. You're becoming a spectacle itself and they're forgetting about actually what you're talking about and why you're angry and so on. And you are kind of channeling their anger into public space so they are, you know, going through this catharsis moment. And thus, this doesn't change the history, obviously. <laughs> And then I thought about this excessive expression of anger, anger and how it actually you know, invades our communication sphere and how ineffective, how inconsequential actually it has become. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and then, you know, personally, I started losing, I started losing anger, uh, not, you know, the dynamic anger. I think I personally replaced it with attention. And then I saw that people, uh, not the people. I saw that like the social media is already commodifying our anger, all emotions, but mostly anger. And when something, when an emotion uh, can be commodified, uh, can we still use it as an emotion, a fundamental emotion uh, to build political action upon? I don't think so. Mm -hmm. uh, and it also, the, this you know expression of anger, especially on social media, creates the illusion that we are politically engaged. Yeah. Or actually it creates this illusion that you are politically engaged and you are showing it off, not showing, you know, but you are like proving that you are politically engaged. You are not, you know, uh, one of those people who feel fucking nothing and so on. Yeah. So that anger does not interest me anymore. And, um, attention instead is the determination of being of keeping your anger refined i think mm -hmm. and this expression of anger and the you know elevating the anger degree and so on it is not sustainable how can you be angry all the time yeah how can you be angry all the day anger is a passing by emotion it's mm. not it's not, uh, it's not a thing that you can hold to fucking forever. So yeah, 
This is why I think we need to think about attention. I am not the only person, or I'm not the first person to say this. It's a tradition. You know, I, I told it about, uh, about this in the book, Iris Murdoch, Hannah Arendt, uh, Simone Weil. Uh, um, funny enough, uh, they're all female. They thought about this mm. because it's important. Uh, you know, it is important when attention is talked, is mentioned by a woman. Yeah. Because we are, as a gender, uh, bent from being angry. Mm. Uh, that's why sometimes uh, we might even need to be angry just to oppose that uh, dominant understanding of female. But still, in even, you know, despite this fact, I think we can, uh, as women as well, uh, can think about attention and can build our political action upon the the concept of attention rather than anger mm -hmm. so it becomes a, a a deeper you know more genuine i, I guess almost a you know the attention would imply you know that we're, we're you know, focusing on something and figuring out and trying to actually solve a problem rather than rather yeah. than reacting because yeah so much yeah. So much, I guess. Sorry, I, I interrupted. Attention is a commitment, whereas anger is a reaction. So mm -hmm. yeah, uh, and the reaction is always connected to action. So what what if there is no action, uh, and if you are cons only consists of reaction? So attention is a deliberate commitment uh, to 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 watch what's happening, but not only watch, but be an active agent within the political sphere. So yeah, that's why anger, although it's, it feels like there's too much, you know, action in anger, uh, anger implies that. Actually, I think attention is the real thing that changes the political uh, sphere and changes the course of the time. Mm. I think it's something that struck me reading those when, when I talked about at the very start of the, the show was that yeah, the, the right, is very good <clears throat> at talking about raw emotion. And you, know, you combine that with social media, which is about constant turn of emotion. They've just kind of got a head start on us in this, in this so, so we're always playing catch up in this game, which is just kind of outrage generation. You know, the, 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 you know, the, the, the hard right are, are always gonna be one step ahead on that. And it's a, it's a, it's a game they play better. And maybe it's a game that, that, that that left and left and liberal people shouldn't be playing. You say also that in the book that, that quitting anger, as you put it, is a is a moral choice, and I think that's something that that, that pops up in this in the book quite a lot. And it's something you talked about is that that this is this is a book about personal choices rather than political programs necessarily. Yeah, that's why it kind of mutes some people who were expecting some political, you know. Um, political, real politic book or a revolutionary cookbook. But it is about personal choices. And um, yeah, quitting anger has been a moral choice for me because, you know, I am in this situation. I left my country, I'm living in Zagreb, I'm writing in English um, mostly now. Um, you know, this therapist uh, conversation that you mentioned in the book, in the beginning, um, yeah, I noticed that I quit anger because I am in the mode of survival. Mm -hmm. 
I'm trying to survive in this country. I'm trying to survive in English. I'm trying to survive uh, without my loved ones around me and so on. You know, several other things and pandemic made everything even worse. That's mm. not needless to say. Um, so I noticed that anger is taking too much time and energy from me. That, uh, you know, expression of anger uh, and, you know, display of anger constantly. Mm. So that is why I am more attentive, more full of attention uh, towards reality now. Yeah. Uh, and this also, you know, anger uh, is not an emotional space where thoughts are occurring necessarily. Uh, and when you're too angry, you cannot really see the mechanism, uh, the, the, the parts of the mechanism and how that mechanism works. Uh, and that mechanism is the thing that makes you angry in the beginning. So only through attention, you can see the mechanism and you can turn around the mechanism, if you will. The, I'm talking about political mechanism. Here. So yeah, uh, this is why attention is important uh, because it kind of, stops us this uh this extreme excessive uh, ex, uh, expression of anger stops us from talking about the subject and talking about what we are going to do next or what we are going to do to stop this you know whatever the political malaise is mm. yeah attention is a i think is a very refined form of anger uh and it needs no show of anger Mm-hmm. You talk. Um, you mentioned a couple of times you you're you're living in, in Zagreb now. So you've been there for how long? Well, it has been almost five years now. Years, unbelievable. So so you know, so. I, I like I, I just read Adorno. Some I I saw a quote from Adorno on Twitter like mm. yesterday. It was amazing. He said. Uh, for those men, men, he says men, of course, for those men who have no more a homeland, writing is a home. And I noticed that I said the same thing. So I think we are going through similar uh, similar processes uh, with those who have been, who felt homeless or who were homeless in, during the Second World War. Uh, you know, these are, I think, you know, we're uh, in terms of intellectual zeitgeist, we are repeating the time uh, of Nazi regime. Mm-hmm. It was a time where uh, several people asked the same question, is humankind evil? Yep. Uh, and I think, although there is no Nazism, although there is no fascism in uniforms or uniforms or boots, I think more, many of us, again, started asking this question, is human evil? Mm-hmm. Because we have been you know, subjected to too much banality, evil of banality or banality of evil. Yeah. Um, so I think many of us are thinking about this question. So this uh, initial question um, gave us Freud, Hannah Arendt, Adorno and several others, and or Eric Fromm. And now I think the, you know, intellectual zeitgeist will come to a place where we, are, uh, we will be discussing this question and we will try to, prove ourselves that humankind is not completely horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think this is the time for that kind of question now. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think, I mean, if you, again, if you look at back at, at, at writers, um, 
you know, writing in the 30s. Um, you know, I think one of my favorites is um is Joseph Roth, who is, you know, had to mm-hmm. had to escape um escape Vienna and go to Paris. Now obviously Paris in the 1930s was full of exiled writers, but but does that exile do you, I mean, I know you, you talk about being in survival mode um, and, you know, being on a different footing, but does, do you think the, like, ex, I mean, I, I don't know if you'd like using the word exile, but, but it, it, there is a trope of the exiled writer having a, you know, having a keener eye. Do you feel that's true? Well, Albert Camus said once that all writing is exile writing, all ri- literature is exile ri- literature. That is, I think, kind of true. Um, I don't like the word exile because it may, it puts me in this impossible position or, you know, it, it brands me forever because once you're in exile, you're in exile, on, even though, even if you go back. Mm-hmm. So that's why I don't like the word. It, I, I try to take it as a journey and this part of yeah. the journey. No, no, no. <laughs> but, um, yeah. Um, I think we are once more going through a period of time where the free thinkers feel homeless, mm-hmm. even if they are in their homeland. Yeah. I think this is, um, this is becoming a reality uh, in Britain, in the United States, in several other countries as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and that worries me. And this is why I wanted to write this together because the, the the loneliness that we are suffering from the survival mode that we are all in all you know people who think who who worry about the world situation and so on we need to come together because there is this yeah there is this loneliness which will eventually uh will make us stefan zweig's of 21st century whereas i'd rather you know, build another Frankfurt school. <laughs> <laughs> well, One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss
so I, I guess I mean, in, in some way, it, it it sounds slightly glib to say, but but the past the past year has has made that that intellectual loneliness and isolation become become a very physical and real and visceral thing in a yeah. way that people may not have kind of recognised before. That literally did the impossibility, as you say, of travelling. Of you know, you you would normally you know normally now you would be spending the next three months on the road, mm-hmm. you know, going to every festival across Europe and beyond and so on and meeting all these people and having all these great conversations and all these incidental side conversations and meeting new people to have different conversations. And yeah. none of that kind of, none of that can happen now. Yeah. Uh, Ironically, the book is called Together and I am constantly at my dinner table doing these Zooms, <laughs> in my, you know, plastic <laughs> flowers. Yeah. Um, well, I was thinking about this today, actually. Uh, there are two kinds of writers, as far as I know. Um, one of you know, one kind feeds on uh, books and texts. Uh, they get their nour- nourishment from the writing, mm-hmm. and the other kind uh, is they get the nourishment from real life. I am unfortunately the second type. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it is unfortunate the pandemic happened, so there is no you know, togetherness, or there are no new people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, so it, it affects me a lot. The pandemic affected me a lot. Uh, yeah, and like any other middle-class bourgeois, I turn to nature. <laughs> <laughs> but how long can you hug a tree, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I want to, you mentioned um, in the Frankfurt School, and, and, and that's, I think, a neat kind of segue into something that comes up in the book that I found very interesting was you're very critical of, I think, yourself maybe and and your peers. Um, in the turn, you describe in the 90s how, how, the, you know, how the, the, the suddenly something called, you know, finance and the financial correspondent happened, the business correspondent happened, and... The, I guess capital took over that side of talking about material things and money, and the left, for want of a better phrase, you know, took over culture, um, mm-hmm. and decided that we could we could understand everything in in terms of meta narratives and discourse rather than rather than factory outputs. Um, how has that? You know, how did that first? You know, when did you first come to kind of realize that as a as a problem, I know it's, it's something that happened here a lot, kind of, you know, and I guess it, it kind of came right through the eighties with, with Foucault and so on, you know, and so many people were interested, were fascinated by these things, but did mm-hmm. it become a dead end? Yeah. Well, uh, okay, let's put this in context. Uh, I started journalism in nineteen ninety three. Uh, I was nineteen, and this is nineties now. Uh, and then I was 27 when I became a political columnist uh, in mainstream media. And it was the beginning of 2000, I think. I, I, I noticed there's something got wrong here. Like we are having a lot of fun with Lacan and Bourdieu and everybody. Uh, and then, <laughs> you know, the, and that I don't know. Re, I don't remember exactly when, but there was a time when Edward Said uh, threw a stone, and everybody applauded, and so on. Uh, 
So, yeah, it was then I thought, okay, we're having fun. We are uh, reading every situation, mm. and narrative and so on, but the, the real life is not happening there. And then, of course, you know, I read and so on, and then I saw that actually the leftists and the progressives were ousted uh, from that uh, agora where, you know, the economy is taking place. Yeah. Uh, it, was a it was an actual defeat. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is why we took shelter in this cultural criticism and <laughs> all that, all that nice stuff that I love. But then it doesn't really change the world, does it? Uh, and then I, you know, I, I did it as well without even noticing what I am doing. You know, uh, talking about poor people as if this is a narrative. This yes. like, it's, 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 it is. I think it's a defeat, but also it is um, also, uh, uh, you know, how shall I put it? Somehow uh, the elite, elite intellectuals, many of them had made a peace with this fact and they were, you know, earning money. They were having, you know, positions and so on. Uh, so yeah, this was a, this was a defeat and we, 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 we went to in, the, in that shutter of cultural criticism and we gave up on economy. You know, we gave up uh, understanding economy, which is a horrible thing. I don't know if you remember, like it, it was 2008, mm. uh, you know, after the housing bubble yep. crisis, we all went on Google and looked the word derivative. What is <laughs> not seriously? I'm like I, I spent days to, trying to understand what a derivative is, and it was already too late. And there were many people understanding what it is and making capitalizing on it, and so on. So yeah, many people think that Michael Moore. I, I mentioned him in the book. Uh, Michael Moore is a populist, and you know he's fun, but but he did something important. He made me understand what a derivative is. <laughs> I think we have to do more of that because. Uh, it might be a very old school of understanding uh, of being an intellectual, but we owe those who know owe to the other people. I think mm -hmm. so Michael Michael Moore is one of them, one of those who is paying his debt back to the society. Um, so yeah, we should be doing more of that. I think we should be understanding economy. I'm like, we are not idiots. Yeah, but most of the time we feel like idiots when there is you know, these, these, you know, market guys, uh, traders and so on, they speak of this world in a different way and we don't understand their world. We have to understand it because that, that is where the reality happens with. That is where the real stuff is happening. Mm. I think what's, what's I mean, an element that's fascinating for me, it's, it's something that's, that's playing out more and more in the UK now with a, with a government that's, that's decided to get involved in culture wars um, yeah, suddenly they've, they, you know, they, they've, they've become obsessed now with, with how history is taught in schools and how, which is, you know, it's taught adequately, how, you know, and, you know, what, what plays are put on in theatres and so on in a very odd way. And, and it feels like sometimes, you know, having, as you said, the left having in the 80s and 90s, kind of in the early 2000s, taken shelter in culture, it, feel, it feels a little like the, the right is coming for culture now too. Absolutely. Actually, this <laughs> I have to confess something. 
since I was since I started writing this book, or like I wouldn't say that, like since a few months, I'm not following British and American politics as closely as I did. Mm. Uh, and after Have to Lose a Country, and I am blessed. I'm so happy that I don't have to follow it for a while. <laughs> and so that's why I didn't know about this. But okay, if you ask me, like two years ago, I would have told you that this would happen. Actually, there was a, I think there was a sentence in How to Lose the Country. You might think that you're going to, you know, confine yourself to your personal spaces, but there won't be any personal space. They will come for you there as well. Mm. <laughs> so, it's yeah. A, yeah, there's a great George Orwell um, article he wrote for Tribune about meeting a, someone in, in, the, um, in the Café Royal during, he meets a young artist in the Café Royal during, a, during an air raid. And the um, young artist says that he says to you, he doesn't care whether the Nazis win or not because he's an artist and he'll still have his, his art. Mm. And Orwell tries to explain to him, no, that, that, that's not how it works. Absolutely. That's not how it works. But I think, you know, certainly, you know, if you look at, um, I, I, again, our cold piece, um, a short piece out a few years ago when the, the, everyone suddenly heard talking about Ottomanization and how this was the new thing that, that Erdogan yeah. was demanding. And they were... Yeah. Then there were hipsters who were, you know, completely, I don't know, detached from uh, the reality that only the poor and the political people have to suffer. And then they ended up, they found themselves in ballot boxes trying to, you know, stop the poll reading. Uh, so, yeah, it doesn't matter where you are. I mean, there is no way, uh, there is no space out of politics. One has to first of all, realize this, there is no space out of politics. So uh, yeah, there is this new generation which interests me most nowadays. This They're on TikTok, they're not interested in politics at all and so on. Uh, and I wonder how, when they're going to understand that their uh, space is not un, uh, apolitical or it is not outside politics. Yeah, and also culture, I mean, like cultural domination. That, by the way, uh, Erdogan is now constantly talking about producing culture, and they are trying to do that. And while trying to do that, they are harvesting intellectuals and artists from the progressives and from the you know former leftists and so on. Yeah. It is <laughs> there has been a moral discussion, you know, about what to do in this situation for artists among artists lately yeah. um, in Turkey. But yeah, I mean, like, how can a regime survive without producing its culture? Of course, mm -hmm. of course, of course, they're going to produce the culture. And unfortunately, I have to say this, you'll be surprised how many people will compromise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that is the most heartbreaking thing. It is not the, you know, right-wing populists doing this and that. Actually, the most heartbreaking thing for the progressives uh, is that there'll be many people not many, but there'll be enough yeah. people that would that would give in and that would be very happy to be in the same picture with Boris Johnson, Erdogan, whatever. Mm -hmm. You say, I mean, there, there there is a whole generation coming up who, who you know, may think they can stay political until the politics comes to them. But but at the same time, you talk in the book about new movements who are you're very engaged personally i guess but but there isn't that there isn't what older generation would have seen as a as a coherent movement as such there are things that 
ebb and flow. And I think how you put it, you say that people go back. When they, when I'm quoting your own line here, when when they're met with massive state violence, they retreat to their sleeping cells rather than choosing to arm themselves as previous generations have done. And they're mostly overcautious about protecting the boundaries of individuality, but can act as a synchronized and unified entity. How does that? What's the the? I guess the question is, what's the future in that? Because I think we're so we're in this interregnum between still between kind of. I guess, organized party politics and what comes next. And we're still trying to figure out, particularly on the left, particularly trying to figure, figure out what comes next. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, what comes next? Um, before Gezi, before, before Gezi protests happened in Turkey, uh, I should call it uprising, actually. Uh, actually, three years before that, uh, the high school kids started protesting something about the you know, exams. And they were in city centers. They were not big groups. They were in the city centers and so on. And that was the first time after 1980, the military coup, uh, that I saw high school kids on the street protesting something. Mm-hmm. And I actually, I wrote about this and I said, in three or four years, you're going to see something big happening. And I think this is this is the next thing. Now we're seeing all these, you know, uh, extinct, extinction rebellion kids, um, you know, climate strike kids, and I shouldn't be calling them kids. I'm very sorry to say this, young people. Um, um, and they're going to go into universities in a few years. Mm. And then let's watch what's happening. I think something big is going to happen in in few years. That's in, in, on global level. But before that, I'm not before that, you know, meanwhile, something else will happen. Um, these new political organisms that we can, you know, we can see them as the children or the, you know, the fruits of world social forums, Occupy moments, and so on. I think these new political organisms, which are quite, um, you know, amorphous at this amorphous at this point, will somehow, uh, like fish, as I told this in the book, like fish, they're going to, to you know, surround the wreck of political institutions, mm-hmm. the you know, collapsing political institutions, and they're going to bring them into life. And this is happening in Turkey, and, <clears throat> and you know, the mayor, mayor, mayor elections was the first big political opposition against, uh, challenge against uh, Erdogan. In Istanbul, Izmir, and Ankara, three big cities uh-huh. now run by opposition mayors. And actually, uh, on Sunday in Zagreb, the same thing happened again. Um, this is a country where rising, popul- rising right-wing populism is a big issue. And a mayor who is a progressive, um, progressive politician uh, is about to win the elections. Let's say mm-hmm. that. And <clears throat> because I think all those. Um, cultural criticism people <laughs> or <clears throat> um, people who divided understanding and action somewhere around 90s. Uh, and those uh, people who think that if we can live, you know, in, in narrow space, in our artistic space, everything will be over. All those people who were, uh, who did not uh, go into real politics for such a long time mm-hmm. are now noticing that their life, uh, their life spaces are under threat. And unless they do real politics, 
uh, they're going to be victims uh, of a regime, mm. of an op oppressive regime, of or authoritarian regimes. And this is this is for every you know. I'm saying this for several countries, especially yes. for Turkey. Yes. Okay. Um, I think we'll you know come to the end here. And um, I know you said before that one of the you know we talk about being the exiled writer and, and you know the, I remember you telling me before about how you know sometimes you can feel like a a panned on display. <laughs> like, what can we do to help you, this endangered species? But I guess again, reversing that question, what 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 should we be doing now? What, what's your one piece of, I guess, advice now that you, that from from together that you would ask people to follow? Hmm. Believe in me. <laughs> uh, no, the book is ending like, you know, I believe in you, you believe in me, and, you know, something like that is a better ending, of course. But, um, yeah, I think I want people to believe in what I say. Not, uh, <clears throat> I'm not saying this out of, you know, uh, author narcissism. Uh, it is more like, you know, I've been through some hardcore shit and my country as well. It go, you know, went through real hardcore times. And it all comes to having faith in humankind and in ourselves, actually. So that's why I say, I believe you believe, please believe in me. And I really want to believe in you, personally, you, Padrek, and, <laughs> and the reader of this book. Um, I am sometimes concerned that, you know, the book is yellow and it's called Together and, you know, several other things. Uh, if, um, if people did not read How to Lose a Country, they might think that this book, this, this book is naive. It is not naive. It is attempting to be naive. And it is asking the question, why do you think these words sound naive to you? No. That's a great note to end on. Ajit <laughs> Makran, thank you very much. Thank you, Padraig. It was a pleasure, as always. This episode of Little Atoms was presented by me, Padraig Reedy, and edited by Sky Redman. Little Atoms is supported by 89UP and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe and rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. And remember to check out littleatoms.com for a full archive. Thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.